welcome back to Cinema in Seconds. This is the podcast where we take a look at the small moments in great movies. I am your host, Ian. And I'm Daniel, your other host. (laughs) And today we are looking at uh, movies from the early 2000s. So we're going back to the early part of, I want to say the century, but really I guess it's the millennium. Oh, true. (laughs) Really makes it more special. There you go, yeah. (laughs) So we've got... Uh, three movies each that we're going to talk about this week and yeah so we're going to take a look at the 2000s which is was an interesting time for me because i had just uh, i'm going to show my age here dan but i just got out of high school <laughs> and so you know kind of on your own and uh watch anything that i want go see anything that i want uh you were probably still a wee lad at this point yeah, I was between the ages of six and eight in this time frame. Okay, I'm sorry I brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's funny you're talking about, like, you know, kind of for the first time being able to see the movies you want without having to have, like, parental approval. Uh, I get the impression that a lot of the films you'll be picking will be ones that you saw in the mid or in the early 2000s. None of the films I chose, I actually saw in that time frame. I saw them much right. later. Right. Yeah. Yeah, only one of mine I, I watched a while later, but the other ones I saw at the time. Okay. Should we get rolling? Sure. You want right. to kick us off? You betcha. I'm going to talk about 2000's Almost Famous, which is, of course, the story about the young reporter who follows along with a... Well, it's a fictional rock and roll band but it's based off of cameron crowe who actually was a reporter going on tour with led zeppelin way back in the day so it's all like a it's a very personal story for him and he's on tour with these these rock stars and that takes place in the 70s so this is like when the idea of out of control rock star was really really took root in our in our culture and the moment I want to talk about is the phone call between uh, Russell, who's the ma- lead singer of the band, the band Stillwater, and uh, and the mum. <laughs> and so, and she is played by Frances McDormand, by the way. So, perfect. But, yeah, so William's mum, the reporter's mum, he's talking to William in the hallway while all these parties are going on, of course. And he's talking about when he'll be back from the tour. And suddenly Russell, who thinks that he's just the most charming guy out there, just grabs the phone away for a moment. He's going to, you know, sweet talk this guy's mom and, you know, everyone's going to love him again. And Frances McDormand just rips into him. (laughs) And basically she's and she straight up says she's like, I am not falling for your charms. And this is a 15 year old kid. And she just starts going off and all the all the things that he does for them and they don't, they take advantage of him. And, and by the end, you can just see the progression of Billy Crudup's character, Russell, <laughs> just be like, Oh yeah, I, I've got this. She's going to think I'm great. And, and then, and then she's like, he starts getting a little serious and then he just silence. <laughs> and you can tell that he just got owned and he's left speechless by the end of the phone call. Nice. Good choice. I think it's funny. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I just, I just wanted to say, Frances McDormand. And of course, she's got lots of buzz right now because she just won the Oscar and her movie won the Oscar. Uh, but this is back in, I don't know if it's her early 
days, but you know, the Fargo type days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when she only had one Academy Award. Right. Not yeah. Three. <laughs> Way back then. <laughs> <laughs> and she, oh, does she play this, this uh, scene brilliantly? Like you just, you just buy it and you're just, and you almost feel the same way that, that Russell's feeling. You're just like, oh yeah, I've been having fun watching this movie. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one plays, I'm not impressed with you quite as good as Francis McDormand. Like it's just, it's so believable. We're, uh, in that scene, it's funny when I saw on the Google Doc uh, the phone call. I thought it was going to be the Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, the currency you share with somebody's, you know, when you're uncool. It's like, oh, you right. know, home on a Friday. Of course, I'm uncool. Um, yeah. I'm li- I'm glad that you went this way though, because I think that scene has almost become so enshrined that it's not really a little moment anymore. Right. And even in the film, it's a kind of a, a important scene. Uh, emotionally but this one really is like because i'd forgotten about it until you described the scene and now i do remember um and i think a lot of credit goes to the performances because it's a scene that in lesser hands could have i think felt very trite and even sitcom-y yeah but uh the performers really sell it and like billy credit's kind of slow sinking into like less confident less cool it's like the perfect he plays it just right he doesn't oversell it right it's great and and it (laughs) And my uh, my recollection is that that actually sits with him for a while too. Like in the next few mm. scenes, you can kind of see it even just on his face and his expression that that phone call does last with him a little bit. And there, there's also the plot nugget, I guess, right? Um, where it's revealed they find out that this kid is 15, which you know he's he lied to Rolling Stones. He's been lying to Rolling Stones about his age just so he can go on tour with them. And so they didn't realize he was. I mean, obviously he looks young, but he wasn't as mm-hmm. young as he was too. So there throws a bit of revelation in there. But this is kind of a stray thought. But you know, you mentioned that it's based on Cameron Crowe sort of going on tour with Led Zeppelin. <clears throat> um, do you think the film would have been better or worse if they actually cleared it to be? like Led Zeppelin, like actors playing Zeppelin in the movie, but it's not like a fictional band that's sort of an amalgamation of 70s rock. It's Zeppelin. Would that make the film better, you think, or worse? Honestly, I think that... I, w- I don't think it would work as well because I think mm. then the attention would be on the band and not the kid and his relationships with, well, the band and uh, and with Penny Lane. I think it would be it would be too hard to keep that from being the Led Zeppelin show. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that it's just an amalgam, like a fictional band. And yep. I think because then then you're a little bit freer, right? He's a little bit freer to do what he wants with it. it once you make it a specific group, well, now you got to there's so many other things you got to worry about with how they're being portrayed and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know we get the same movie at all. That's a good point. And I don't know how protective Zeppelin are over their like image and estate. But if it's anything like bohemian rhapsody where you know every band member needs a certain amount of close-ups and everyone needs to be shown in a certain positive light yeah it probably would be a lot worse it might be yeah so uh good answer (laughs) (laughs) yeah we won't go into bohemian rhapsody not yet well i mean i have many things to say about that movie though i mean it's it's a movie that is like completely free of little moments so it'll probably never come up on the show (laughs) everything's pitched at a 10 constantly yeah that's the truth (laughs) <laughs> okay enough uh bohemian rhapsody bashing let's uh let's go to your first pick sure thing uh so my pick comes from a little movie called memento directed by 
Chris Nolan. Uh, depending on where you are on the internet, the internet's most loved or most hated filmmaker. Um, I think at this point, Memento is kind of a film that needs no introduction. But in case anyone's listening who don't know what the film is about, the basic premise is it's a thriller about a man searching for revenge against a person who killed his wife. The catch is that the attack that left his wife dead also gave uh, the protagonist, Leonard Shelby, a mental condition called retrograde amnesia where he can't form new memories. And uh, complementing that, the structure of the film, a lot of it is told in reverse. So we see the last scene of the film first, and then the first scene, and then the second last scene, uh, and then the second scene, etc., etc., until they meet in the middle. So a lot of the scenes in the main story, all of the scenes really, we open with little context for what uh, Leonard is doing or why. And the moment I've chosen is one that plays that for comedic effect, where the scene starts where Leonard's running, and you hear his voiceover say, Okay, so what am I doing? And he looks around and he sees someone else running. He's like, oh, I'm chasing this guy. And he starts to veer that way. And then the guy sort of clocks him confused, like, and then raises his gun and starts shooting at Leonard. And you hear Leonard's voiceover go, oh, he's chasing me. (laughs) So I love the scene. It's um, the reason I wanted to highlight it is sort of two main reasons. One is that uh, there's a tendency when people talk about Nolan to sort of critique him as like this boring stick in the mud who's self-serious and you know humdrum whatever and I don't think that's really fair his movies aren't exactly full of silliness but there is like a consistent streak of humor in basically everything he's made except Dunkirk all of his films have a lot of sort of levity uh, including the Dark Knight trilogy Um, and I think this is a really good example of that of just a a scene that starts with a small laugh and uh I don't know, easy to underappreciate. But the other reason is I think part of the fun of a movie like this is just having the filmmakers explore its premise and experiment with it a little bit. It's kind of like in science fiction stories when a lot of the fun of the of reading science fiction stories and novels is just going through the implications of whatever the technology or phenomenon in the story is. So you have this character who can't make new memories. What are the kind of situations that you can put him in and one that's just, it's not a huge part of the movie, but just he starts a chase and he doesn't know if he's, you know, the pursuer or the one fleeing. It's its a little thing, but it's a fun way to just have uh, uh, have fun with the premise. And it, it in a way, and this is maybe a stretch, but to me it foreshadows a lot of what Inception does where people sometimes critique that film because it's like so much of it is expository dialogue. But I think for a lot of the film's fans and for me, that expository dialogue is a lot of the fun of the movie is just the characters talking about this concept and its implications. Right. And in a similar way, I think this scene uh, illustrates that idea. That's a really good point. I never thought about that, that angle of the exploring the premise, but it really does that. This is a great pick. Cause I love this. <laughs> I love this scene too. Whenever I think of Memento, that's one of the first ones that comes to my mind as well. But. Nice. <laughs> It is so funny, but you're right. He he does get unduly um, ragged on for being humorless, and I don't know where that came from. Like if, I, if you watch The Dark Knight, he's got there's lots of jokes in there. Like there's lots of fun moments in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know where that came from. Yeah, I I don't. I I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that in interviews he seems sort of like. I don't think he's boring exactly, but he's not like brimming with personality or enthusiasm like someone like Spielberg. 
and I don't know, maybe some of it's because it's British, so people think he's like <laughs> uptight or something. I really don't know. Um, it might be because people describe the Dark Knight films as like, oh, they're so serious and gritty, which is like kind of true to an extent, and certainly I guess compared to like the excessive quippiness of like the Marvel movies, for example, I guess yeah. it's like it stands out as being a lot less humor, but they're not totally dry, humorless films. And I think Memento is a good indicator of like, even back when he was making R-rated indie thrillers, he still had that sort of levity. And there's other moments like that in, there's like the moment where he tries to break into one of the motel rooms and he gets the wrong one and realizes <laughs> he just knocks out some complete stranger. And again, like he doesn't need to do that. He's adding these moments specifically to have a laugh. Um, and yeah, I, I, to me, the this this scene though is the the best example of that humor in Memento, and probably one of the funniest scenes in uh, Nolan's filmography. Yeah, yeah, good. I just love the guy's reaction when he realizes that the guy he's like the other character, the guy he's chasing, has suddenly like started turning on him, and he's like, "What's happening right now?" He's like, mm-hmm. "What? Okay," and then he just starts shooting at him, but. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I guess that's the other thing is like and probably a good indicator of why even if you look back it's not that surprising that Nolan became the maker of like big mainstream hits. Like Memento, it's a high concept movie and you need to really pay attention, but I think it is really entertaining. Yeah, it is. Like it is a thriller. It's got this this these lighter moments. Um looking back, it's not surprising that, you know, he became the mainstream filmmaker that he did. Yeah, that's for sure. It's an interesting character moment in if you think about it too, because it's almost like he's being forced to act one way or another, and his instinct is to think that he's the one chasing it down. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a there's an interesting aspect of what that says about the character too. Sure, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, the fact that it's a story about him searching for revenge, so instinctively him thinking like, okay, this is you know my prey. I'm not the vulnerable one in this story. Oh, wait, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which, in a way, is kind of a great, like, now that you say that, a good little, uh, you know, microcosm of the whole film where, you know, he thinks he's in control despite the fact that he's, you know, having to work from notes and tattoos. But as towards the end, we have a lot of questions about the validity of his journey and if he maybe got his revenge a long time ago and has just been repeating a cycle or if he's been manipulated all along um certainly the the i was i almost chose something with the carrie ann moss character i didn't because there was there's kind of a lot going but there's so many the way she you kind of keep changing how you feel about her in the film and then realize oh she kind of manipulates leonard too but but then you're like oh well he kind of wronged her but didn't realize it like there's so many fun little uh layers to it that um yeah i think that uh the scene kind of has in its own way its own simple silly little way yeah Awesome. Yeah, awesome pick. All right. I love that scene, too. Take it away. Okay, let's go to 2002. City of God is the one that I'm talking about. So City of God is a Brazilian movie set in 2002. And I want to talk about the Knockout Ned introduction. So City of God kind of takes place in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, which they actually call the City of God. And... It kind of follows one main character who's living through all this crazy stuff that happens. And he's narr- he's narrating it as well as he goes, but you're following his story. 
But through this, you you see a whole bunch of other characters and their stories and and all all of that. And this is, I believe, this is based off of a like a real account. Yep. It so is. yeah, so this this comes from this guy's actual story that he's that he's just telling. At this point in the movie, uh, this well, he's a kid really. So this kid, his, they call him Rocket. He and his friend are. They're going to, you know, give their hand at, at the crime that's happening all around them. They're going to give it a go. And so they're going to decide that they're going to rob the uh, the toll taker at, on one of the subways or not or one of the buses. And and so when they do that, they go and they kind of have a chat with, with the guy who's, who's working on the bus. And they find out that he's from the same place, from the same uh, area of the city. And they start talking to him and he's talking about how he was in the army. And so, of course, they don't go through with it, right? They don't go through with the robbery. They're like, okay, well, let's just go. But the the great part is while this is happening, he's talking about uh, being in the military, but now he's not. And they say, well, would you ever fight again? He's like, no, I don't really. I'm not a fighter, but I would if I had to. And then this, the movie stops for a second for the narration and the narration says little would he know that he would have to uh, but this is not time for knockout Ned's story and then it just moves on and that just every time I watch that that catches me because it just makes me so excited to watch the rest of the movie because one thing I love about City God, City of God is that even though it is based on this real account the movie is told almost like a series of fables almost it's like it's almost like they take all these things that happen and even though they're terrible things and it's with criminals and and drug dealers and all this but they're also almost mythologized in a way and their stories are told like legends of this place and this is kind of a, a good idea of that right now we want to know what knockout ned's story is we want to know why he's called knockout ned He's just this random guy in the bus and suddenly we're told that he's going to be a major player and he's going to have his own legend and he's going to have his own fable. And by the time you get to it, A, it does not disappoint, but B, by the time that happens, you've forgotten about this already. And then he comes back into the story and you're like, oh yeah, they mentioned him on the bus. And it just, it's such a great way to build the fabric of that movie. Uh, that that I just think works brilliantly. That's an awesome, awesome pick. Um, something else I think I really love about that scene and something you 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 talk about when you know you mention how like we don't come back to him for a long time. There's a lot of little details in the script like that where the sort of interconnections between characters um, because it, it it paints such an intricate portrait of this. In a way, despite the fact that it's a very big story and a very epic in its scope, it's a relatively small community so right. that one action ripples out in really consequential ways. And this is one of those little moments where like this character who ends up becoming a massive part of the story later on and having really, in a lot of ways, you know, devastating character arc, um, he's introduced way earlier in this sort of more little moment because it makes sense that within this community, he would have other contact with people Absolutely. there. Um, and it reinforces this idea too of like the cycles and ways that um, 
things ripple outwards. And I'm talking kind of vague because I know we're we have sort of an inconsistent rule about spoilers, but this film I feel like was a huge deal when it came out and has somewhat faded in a lot of people's memories. So I'm thinking there might be people listening who haven't seen City of God. And if you haven't, one of the great pleasures of it is watching the ways that one action ripples outwards to affect characters in ways you don't expect and so on and so on. Um, So I don't want to take that away, but this seems a great example of that. And I also want to quickly say, you mentioned how it's a true story. In some ways, I feel like just that revelation is a moment that could have qualified for the show. Because if I remember correctly, that text does not appear on screen until the very end. Because the first time I was watching the film, I think I was, I might have been in high school. I probably was in high school. And just being like, this is, you know, the most energetic and wild story I've ever seen. Like, it's so gripping. It's so dense. It's so detailed. It's so exciting and outlandish. And then you get to the end and it's like based on a true story. And it's like... It's what <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. just that text in and of itself, which in most movies is just like, who cares in, in this, it actually, I don't want to say it makes the film better because the film is great regardless, but it does sort of change your perspective on it in ways that in some ways that are, you know, very sad because the film deals with some pretty extreme cases of poverty and the Absolutely. consequences of it and, you know, violence in, in poor communities, but on a cinematic level of like, wow, like this this wild ride is all true. There's something, and I I want to be careful about how I word this, but there is something kind of exciting about that too in a sort of morbid way. Yeah. The, that interconnected stories like that, when all those stories are interconnected in all these, all these subtle ways, that's my jam. Like I love that stuff. <laughs> this, I would say a good TV equivalent to this in a number of ways is The Wire. Because it has that. It has a whole bunch of interconnected stories. Some characters are built up almost like legends, like Omar Little, for example. And, of course, it deals with... It, you're working within this uh, world of poverty and crime as well in both stories. But even something like Game of Thrones or it's kind of the same... kind of works on the same level, right? you got tons of characters that are all interconnected in small little ways. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love when a show can do that. Well, it's interesting, too, when you consider, like, this was around the era of, like, the Hyperlink film, which, you yeah. know, you could argue Pulp Fiction launched, and it probably peaked in the early 2000s with, like, Immoral's Perils and Traffic, and then maybe ended with, like, Babel. This film is not a Hyperlink film, no. really. Like, it's there's one protagonist. Yeah. yeah, and there's an ensemble, but there is a very clearly defined core. Rocket is unambiguously the one protagonist. Um, but it still gives you a lot of the value that Hyperlink films do without having to sacrifice that core, which is pretty remarkable too. I remember the first time I watched this, I, I had rented it. And before the movie was over, I ordered it. <laughs> nice. I was like, yeah, I'm buying this sucker. Yeah. yeah, it's worth it. It's a fantastic film. It is. It really is. All right. Um, I guess I'll jump into my pick, which is also from 2002, uh, Minority Report. Uh, another obscure filmmaker by the name of Steven Spielberg. Um, so I have to give a little bit of context for what the premise of the film is, uh, just because it really informs this moment. Basically, it's the 2050s, I believe, is the general timeline, and a form of uh, policing called precognition has emerged, where basically uh, they can predict murders before they occur and arrest people before they've committed the crime so in essence you have this very 
right there clear commentary on the nature of policing and surveillance and the degree to which people are guilty and subject to policing before they've actually technically done anything. But for this moment, that kind of doesn't matter. All that does matter is that no murder has happened in Washington for seven years, I think, and whenever a murder is going to be committed, uh, they know, and there's this alarm at the police precinct, which is relevant. So, uh, the main character in the film is Tom Cruise's John Anderton, who's the main super cop who spearheads this initiative and is uh, uh, really believes in that system. And in the first act of the film, a lot of it is centered around Colin Farrell's character, Danny Whitwer, who is basically the internal affairs role. He's coming to investigate and to see the degree to which pre-crime works. And so that does two things in the first act. One is that it is a really natural way to give us a lot of exposition about this world where it makes sense because uh, Whitwer needs to know for his uh, work. And because Anderton's the protagonist, it aligns us with him and makes Whitwer something of a villain, which really comes into play at the end of the first act when the next murder prediction is made, and it's Anderton himself. He's going to kill some guy who he does not know, has never seen, within, you know, 36 hours or something. So he's panicked and uh, has to go on the run, clear his name for the crime he hasn't committed yet, figure out why this man is going to... He's supposed to be killing this man, whatever. But as he's escaping... And at this point, no one knows yet. So he's, Anderton's just slowly sneaking out of the building, trying to get free before people realize he's the uh, the, the killer, the would-be killer. It's very hard to talk about this movie. <laughs> um, but as he's escaping the building, he gets in an elevator, and just as it's about to close, in comes Whitwer. And Whitwer has, you know, he's coming in with, like, I know what you've done, and Anderton is immediately, like, tense because, uh, you know, he's going to be charged of you know, precognated murder in a matter of moments. But, but Whitworth is actually different, right? Like he's yeah. Whitworth's yeah. talking about his uh, drug addiction, right? Um, and how that's what he's going to use to expose him as you know a bad cop and uh, question the legitimacy of this program. But as it's happening, Anderton in a panic pulls a gun on Whitworth, and Whitworth is very dismissive and he doesn't care because he can't be killed. There's been no, you know, right. and then the alarm goes off for a murder. And slowly you see just the light drain out of Colin Farrell's face. And it's just like abject fear. And Anderton slowly leaves the elevator as it opens and escapes. <laughs> um, I love this moment for a lot of reasons. One, the scene itself is is very, in that Spielbergian way, it's uh, sort of, you don't realize how complicated the staging is until you really look at it. A lot of it is done in one shot with moving camera and uh, focus shifting between Anderton and uh, and Whitwer. And so there is a lot of movement, there's a lot of tension, and then it really slows down for that moment where you hear the alarm and you see Whitwer's panic set in. I love the way the tempo of the scene changes where it's like it's, it's all movement and it's all tension and then all of a sudden it's like it's just really slow and it's really... Um, a really scary moment. I think Farrell plays it brilliantly. Um, there seemed to be a period of time where people thought he was a bad actor, which I'm glad. And it was this growing. period of time too. Like yeah. This was, yeah. He'd always get ridiculed every time he'd show up. Which is screen. weird to me. Cause I, th I mean, you could say he's like really silly and daredevil, but he's also the most fun part of that movie. But in this scene and in this whole film, he's really great. Um, and part of what I love about the scene too, is how, 
throughout the film later, we really, our kind of perspective of Colin Farrell's character shifts a lot. Um, and I think this is one such moment where he kind of telegraphs that just a little bit where, you know, he plays these early parts very swarmy. We're meant to dislike him and it's kind of this, you know, business suit wearing dickhead. But that moment where that fear sets in his eyes, even though he's been framed as a sort of antagonist to Tom Cruise's character, I think we do, or at least I do, empathize with him to an extent where I kind of, I feel that same layer of fear that uh, he does. And I just think it's beautifully played. And kind of the more I watch the film, the more I'm like, man, it's, it's, you're kind of, it's easy to focus all on Tom in that scene because he's our boy. And of course he's, you know, the, the last movie star, Right. but, uh, Farrell, man, he really holds his own. Yeah. Anyway, that's a good scene. It, it almost, it, it sort of plays with a pair with your memento in the sense that it's, it's using the film's premise for a small moment of, I, I'm going to go ahead and say humor because it's funny when that happens. Right. When mm -hmm. he, when he's like, I don't hear any, and then all of a sudden it goes off, and you're like, "Yep." <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a good point too, because there's a uh, a really dark streak of humor throughout the film. Um, it feels very Coen Brothers inspired. Uh, I mean, he uh, Spielberg plucks a lot of Coen Brother cast regulars, and there are other moments of just like sort of dark irony that is not totally Spielbergian. Like Spielberg humor is usually a bit more. I think about the Indiana Jones movies, for example, a bit more slapsticky and a yep. bit more just, I don't know. It doesn't have that sort of mean streak uh, or dark irony that this scene does, um, which is a good example of ways that Spielberg challenges himself because yeah, he doesn't get a lot of credit for that either, but he does here. It's been too long since I've seen Minority Report. I should watch that again. It rules. It still holds up. Yeah, awesome. I watched it a lot in high school and was like kind of to a point of obsession uh, but I rewatched it, I think, a year or two ago, and it still is like, ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So. I like that pick. All right. Yeah, I Do you want to hit us with a third one? You bet. Okay. <clears throat> so I've got a bit of an ulterior motive for this one, so I'll explain. Ooh. <clears throat> Sorry. Two Towers. We're talking about the Two Towers, which is, of course, the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. The second Lord of the Rings uh, movie so we mentioned at the top of the show where you know this is i had just gotten out of high school and i was seeing all these movies well the lord of the rings movies were huge for this like this was this was having parties on the on the street <laughs> right waiting to get tickets <laughs> to get into the theater back when you had to do that this and the star wars prequels were pretty pretty big for that so the two towers the moment i want to talk about is when the elves arrive arrive at Helm's Deep. So in the two towers, of course, Helm's Deep is the the crucial battle scene, right? Everything's building up to that. You've got the orc army that's that's marching against the Rowan, and the Rowan are like very desperately trying to find a way to survive and to defend against this massive, massive army. And the odds are very stacked against them. And all of a sudden, out of kind of out of the blue the elf army shows up and of course they're you know they're elves so in lord of the rings worlds and tolkien's world they're uh, they're a pretty big deal right and so they're very good warriors they're very noble all that kind of jazz and then they show up and provide a little bit of relief to this the reason i want to bring this moment up is because i'm a big uh 
book fan of Lord of the Rings. Like Lord of the Rings are my favorite books, period. And back when, of course, I was very excited when these movies came out. Uh, But of course, I kept getting caught up on all these details that were different from the book. And the elves being at the Helm's Deep battle is a huge one because they're in the book. They're nowhere near Helm's Deep. Like they had nothing to do with that whatsoever. So this is a complete fabrication of Peter Jackson and, and the other filmmakers. And so, and you know, I, other Lord of the Rings fans at this time, you know, this was like, why would you do this? Why would you make this change? This is stupid. And that was my thing. I'm like, why are you, what's the point? Why are you doing this? So Two Towers came out at Christmas. And Christmas time, especially at that period, you know, after people go off to college and everything, uh, different places across the country, people would come back for Christmas, right? They come back to see their families. And so your friends are coming home. And it's kind of cool because you can go out to the pub and you and see them again. And so I remember distinctly after Two Towers came out, being at the pub with a bunch of friends and talking about this movie. And they just kept, and I, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they talked, they brought up this moment when the elves show up at Helm's Deep. And of course they're not, they have no idea what about the books or anything like that. And they started saying like how great a moment that was because up until that point, everything was so desperate in the movie there. It seemed absolutely hopeless. And then you get this, little sliver of hope with the elf army showing up and then the audience starts saying maybe they're going to be okay there's you know there's a chance now and my friends actually like pointed this out they noticed this and they and I suddenly it, something clicked in me and I said there's a purpose to that scene why didn't I see that because I was so blinded by it's not like the book and I didn't see how important that scene actually was so I think that they that conversation based on that scene in the movie really triggered something for me. And I started moving away from the idea that adaptations have to be as faithful as possible and moving towards adaptations should be should try to work as much on their own as possible. And this is a good scene of that happening, right? There's a purpose to that, even though it's different from the books. We need this here because we need to give the audience some relief to the layers upon layers of despair that's been putting on them. And so it kind of brings up an interesting idea of where our personal beliefs are as movie fans on adaptations and how faithful they need to be and how faithful not to be. Yeah, uh, there's a lot there. I mean, I think you... um... Uh, you have first of all an, an important scene, and I like the the case that your peers made for it of like this glimmer of of hope in darkness. Because especially like the the lead up to that battle is just like it's almost like aggressive in how much it's like we're gonna die. Yeah. Like it's so dire <laughs> that it's like yeah, you kind of need like something before the people in the audience just start weeping and in, in hopelessness. Um, but I think yeah, and you point out that it was like a high school moment that you had this kind of uh, revelation. I feel like that's sort of when a lot of people towards the end of that, that are, you know, film buffs and, and uh, also book readers kind of have that moment of 
or start to have those moments. I remember even in like um, before that sort of transition in like 10th grade, I think uh, there was like an assignment in English class to talk about a book and its film adaptation. Uh, I did From Rush With Love, which looking back was like, I didn't give myself a lot to work with in terms of theme, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> right. I got to watch James Bond for class. But I remember somebody presenting on The Shining and basically their entire presentation boiled down to like, look at the things the movie changed, epic fail, as if like, right. that's the goal when you set out. Um, and in a weird way, their presentation being so starkly that is like a good reminder of like why that's a bad idea to approach adaptation in general because you start to see how shallow that measure is um and it's interesting it's it's harder though when it's like a book that you know is really close to you as yeah. it clearly lord of the rings was for for you um i'm trying to think what like my moment of like that was I think it might have been reading Upton Sinclair's Oil, which was very loosely the basis for There Will Be Blood. And they're like completely different. By Anderson's own admission, he adapted like the first 150 pages or so of the book and then did his own thing. And even that adaptation is like (laughs) incredibly loose. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of, it's interesting where that, uh, and kind of going back to our show and what we usually highlight for little moments, that's something that, you could argue in and of itself the moment in the film is actually a pretty big deal, but in terms of it being sort of like a the revelation of its importance was like a little moment for you, right. but an important one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well and said. That, that uh that relationship with adaptations has, you know, it's gone on from there. Cause one thing that I think is interesting is this is also the time that the Harry Potter movies um took off, right? And of course I didn't read the first one. I just it wasn't like something I read when I was a kid or anything like that, but I did end up reading all the books and the later movies that came in that series. What I started to see was how much they tried to jam stuff in to make the book readers happy and how that didn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. And so some of those later movies were pretty weak and I point mostly to, well, we got to fit this character in and this character in. And so you get all these characters that are, absolutely surface level in the movie um that are you're basically being force fed or these plot lines you're being force fed and and you gain a lot more appreciation for when filmmakers are comfortable ditching stuff adding what needed to be added doing what they need to do to make their movie great that's a great point. I think Harry Potter is probably the best example of a franchise in, in its adaptations that was so set on like preserving the author of the book's vision at the detriment to the films. Because I think the films are mostly good, but they do suffer from that problem you mentioned. And I mean, even the early ones, like Chamber of Secrets, which is based on the shortest book of the series and is the longest film in the series at like two hours and 40 minutes, 10 minutes longer than The Dark Knight. I just want to stress that (laughs) because you feel it. Um, But part of it is because like, everything not everything but almost everything from the books is referenced in some ways in the film and a lot of that stuff is superfluous detail that if you're reading it as a novel is like can maybe work and be fun but as a a film that has a certain runtime and pacing it drags that thing to a halt where you have like so much excess baggage but you can't you can't lose anything because there's a certain section of the fan base that will uh react none too kind and in a way they shot themselves in the foot by setting up that from the jump with the movies where like 
as they got deeper and yeah. deeper. It's like they can't necessarily make any radical changes now. That's um, right. Although apparently there's a, I didn't know about this till high school, actually, when I knew like hardcore Harry Potter book fans, there's a decent contingency of the fan base that thinks Prisoner of Azkaban is like the worst movie because it changed the most from the book. Oh no. So that's exactly what, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The film that's like clearly the best, yeah. but I think because in the book, the time Turner stuff just kind of is like a thing that happens in the end. Whereas in the movie, like the entire thing's kind of structured around that. But it's like, you can't have a movie where in the last 10 minutes, it's just like, oh, let's just do a time travel. The end. Yeah, like you can't, you need it to build and have some structure and flow. That movie is but, so yeah. great in setting up moments and paying them off later. And mm-hmm. like the storytelling is brilliant. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. And, and I think even stuff like the uh, little details, like the choir with like the frogs, right. for example, like that's not in the book. Right. That's throws um, people off. Mm-hmm. I guess they, yeah, some some people just get caught up on that. And I just think, mm-hmm. oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> One day you'll have your Elms at, Hel- Elms at Helms deep moments. <laughs> One mm-hmm. day. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting too when you made that case because for going back to the, the Helms <clears throat> deep moment, because I wasn't sure at first as you were talking, like, hmm, why is that change necessary? Because I haven't read the books, but I, sorry, one sec, my cat's trying to eat my hamster. I have to quickly shoo him away. <laughs> I'll leave that in, uh, the final. The hamster's in a cage, but the, the cat's just like, just trying to rip that thing apart. And it won't, but it makes a lot of noise. Oh, he's back. Do I have anything I can like throw at him that won't like hurt him? <laughs> All right, one sec. I'll have to take the headset off. Entertain the people, Ian. Okay, I guess I'm vamping. So if you like The Two Towers, let us know at cinema underscore seconds on Twitter. There, I just pitched us while you were gone. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, like as you're talking, I'm like, why did they change that scene? And and I think the that moment of that idea that, you know, it needed something. Um, yeah, it is relevant. Is there... Uh, that character then, because isn't there one of the elves who joins? Doesn't he die in yeah. that battle? Yeah, I believe. Okay, so. does he do? What does he do in the books? He honestly not a whole lot. <laughs> like he <Okay. laughs> he shows up when they show up in the forest, and he leads them to Gladriel, and that's it. <laughs> like that's, okay. that's his, the extent of his character. Hmm. But this is Tolkien, also... where every single character has some sort of fan following. Like so, no, that's true. Uh, were you one of the people who were angry that Tom Bombadil wasn't in Fellowship? That absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I think most most people could realize that that would have been ridiculous. See, most, that's you mentioned the all. books being like your favorite books. I started reading them, I think, in high school because I I loved the films. I'm like, I should probably read these. I know they're not like the same, but um, I don't know. The movies are still really important to me, and I got to. Tom Bombadil, I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> you are not the first person to stop there. I'll tell you that. Great scene, though, and great uh, contextualizing of it. I think that's a really good... Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I just My moment cannot compete. <laughs> yeah, okay, when I first saw this on the notes, I I don't know where my head was. I thought you were doing Catch Me If You Can. Because, <laughs> probably because I saw Minority Port right before that. And anyway. Sure. Go I'm wrong. So, so I'm I'm doing uh You Can Count on Me, which is a Kenneth Lonergan film who is probably most known now for Manchester by the Sea. Right, that's what this is. I couldn't figure out what this movie was, but now you say that, yeah, now it's ringing a bell. It has a very not good title. 
the the title is really bad. It makes it sound like a Hallmark movie or something, and it's it's really not. Um, Kira, and also, Kira, we love the, Hallmark movies. Just I we just, do. I just want to <laughs> do that shout out. Yep. All right. Is Hallmark sponsoring the show? <laughs> I have a friend who loves them. So. All right. Fair enough. So so do I, mean, we, I don't Kira. want to offend. So do we. <laughs> yep, they're our favorite. Um, but so you can count on me. And while I explain the story, it's going to sound like a really tedious melodrama. It's basically about single mother struggling small town and her younger brother who has suffered from addiction and other sort of money stru- uh, struggles comes to move in for a bit. And you can imagine from that like very melodramatic, a uh, lot of yelling and crying scenes. I trusted you. Yeah. That's not this movie. It's very quiet and minimal in its actual plotting. It's really just about the characters. We watch, you know, everyone kind of deal with their problems in their own way and address them to an extent, but nothing really gets solved. Certain characters maybe inch towards being better or learning and growing, but again, it's very like Manchester by the Sea, although less heavy. Kind of a similar idea where it's like kind of just about relating to these people and uh, learning about them over the course of two hours. But the moment I've highlighted is just, to me, a really honest interaction between a sort of father figure and a child, and specifically a young boy, where the um, the Laura Linney character, her son, is uh, working outside with Mark Ruffalo, who's his uncle, and they're doing some basic like construction work. And you see the kid is hammering in some nails into a board, but he's holding the hammer like essentially almost right at like the top, like just before the actual hammer part. And he's hitting like that. And Mark Ruffalo comes by to explain like, that's not how you do it. You have to hold from the bottom and the kids like, well, it's easier to do it from the top. And Mark Ruffalo is just kind of like, well, you're doing it wrong in a really sort of non, like even the way I said it is not quite how he says it. It's like very passionless, just like observate the observation of it. And then kind of walks away and you see the kid after a bit, start hammering properly and I really like this moment because to me it's even though it's not like a father literally it's the most I'm not angry I'm just disappointed dad moment (laughs) I could think of where it's just like I'm not gonna yell at you and tell you you're wrong and force you to do it the right way I'm just gonna point out how wrong you are in what you're doing in the most quiet and devastating way where you will have no choice but to do it properly and it's just so (laughs) It's such an honest moment in terms of capturing that dynamic. Uh, And in general, throughout the film, the kid and Ruffalo have a wonderful little rapport in terms of like the Ruffalo character kind of being having problems, not being totally reliable, but becoming something of a father figure to this kid. And in a lot of ways, a good one, if an imperfect one. And this moment, I think, is is really speaks to that relationship. So, where in the relationship does this happen in the movie? Like, this is later later? in the story, if I remember correctly. Like at this point, they've known each other for a decent while. Um, I don't remember exactly where it is. It's been a while since I've seen the film. In all honesty, I don't know why this really jumped out to me. But um, in some ways, though, it is reflective of the fact that they're comfortable with each other because the kid does, you know, adjust. Right. He so does take the, the he, message he's obviously built up some level of respect with the kid, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right? Yeah, and Laura Linney has no problem leaving them on their own at this point. Um, there is a sort of a complication to that, though. So I have to, I don't remember where this is relative to that <laughs> complication. So, 
man, I gotta get that on Blu-ray and watch it again. It's really good. But yeah, I like I like when movies can do those like you like you said honest moments, right? Where it feels like it's not a movie; it's just something that was captured. Is that would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the fact that it's like you could cut it from the film and you technically wouldn't lose anything in terms of plot or even in terms of character. Like you can, we can talk about how that moment informs the character and enriches them. But from like, you know, a screenwriting seminar where it's like, does this advance the plot or the character development? No, cut it. But it's like such a lovely little, you know, bit of honesty. Uh, And Lonergan's really good at that. I mean, Manchester by the sea is largely just like, that there's some really like heavy dramatic scenes too but a lot of the best parts of that film is just being in the space with these people and learning about them um and i think this uh kind of moment does it very well too and it kind of gets to the core of what makes mark ruffalo like one of the best actors of his generation is just how unassuming he is like he can feel so regular and and uh ordinary right so yeah 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 good pick i've never i've never seen this movie um, and yeah, I didn't recognize it until you said it was Lonergan. And I, oh yeah, because I've only, I've only, <laughs> the only film I've seen of his is Manchester by the Sea. But yeah, based on, I've the, only seen these two. Yeah, so based on that movie, I, I understand the sense of what this movie is based on what you're saying, like the tone of it. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can get that. Yeah. Yeah. You can count on me in some ways as like, I mean, it, in retrospect, it almost feels like a trial run for Manchester. Not that that's similar in terms of story, because they're really not, but just in terms of like the basic style that Lonergan goes after. Because I think this film is great, but Manchester, he really kind of perfects what he's doing. I haven't seen Margaret yet. It's on Disney Plus, though, in Canada, which still feels weird to say, (laughs) but I'll probably check it out soon. All right. So, yeah, those are our moments. Yeah. Interesting collection this week. Yeah, for sure. We ran the gamut from like large scale blockbusters to... Very small human dramas with terrible titles. <laughs> Very generic <laughs> titles. Yep. Yes. Yeah. All right. So that is uh that's our show for the early two thousands. So yeah, let us know what you do you like these movies? Have you have we convinced you to check out any of these movies? Uh give us a shout out on Twitter. We're at Cinema Seconds. No. Cinema underscore seconds on Twitter. I hate underscores. I know. But Twitter just gave it to me, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you can't argue with Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, watch Dan on Eyebrow Cinema. Yep, yep, on YouTube. Check us out. Check out his Vertigo show. And uh, what's what's your last show been to? You got the Q&A. Yeah, and then I, I recently put out a video on being John Malkovich and the Office movies of 1999. So... American Beauty, Fight Club, The Matrix, Office Space, and Being John Malkovich. Uh, people seem to like it. I haven't got too many mean comments about this one, which is nice. Um, and I think it's pretty interesting. So if you like any of those films, uh, I would highly recommend, uh, obviously, because I made it. So I'm a little bit biased, but whatever. Watch it anyway. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'll confirm. Go watch it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, let us know also what your favorite movie moments from the sort of early 2000s are. I mean, certainly... You know, the Lord of the Rings, for example, despite being like the biggest movies in a lot of ways, are full of very small but very key character moments. So there's a lot to choose from. Actually, going into this week, I was like, which one of us is going to pick the Rings movie? And it's probably going to be you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Here we go. So, okay. Well, thanks yeah. for listening, and we'll catch you later. 